Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror pop culture related, from reviews to top 10 lists to interviews and everything in between. Anything you want, they have it if you're looking for horror content. Now, today's episode brings us to a topic I've covered many, many times in the past. You could say I'm a bit of a fanatic when it comes to this specific urban legend or this myth. I'm, of course, talking about vampires. But I'm not talking about vampires in a historical sense. But rather, modern vampires. Ones who maybe walk among us today. Well, if you want to know more, you're just going to have to listen. Because this is a very fascinating one. And this is one that took me down a rabbit hole. Of vampires, myths, and lore. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. While looking for a topic today, I did come across this post, this article in the National Post, which is a Canadian magazine slash newspaper. Yes, maybe a little bit more of an investigative thing. Well, it did send me down that rabbit hole as I did mention. Originally, I was looking for stories. Encounters people were having with maybe potentially real-life vampires that exist in today's society. I came up with something a little bit better than that, though. While I was searching around the internet for anything to do with vampires, I came across a National Post article. It's about this guy went looking for real vampires and lo and behold he found them now as i said this is from the washington post and i'm going to be reading little bits and pieces of the article from here on out the article starts out with a man by the name of john edgar browning and this is his mission to find a real life vampire he was in a kind of a gothic clothing store in new orleans when while talking to the owner a woman and two teenage boys walked in. The woman behind the counter immediately stopped. She eyeballed them. That's who they were looking for. John had potentially found his real-life vampires. Browning approached and started talking to her about this study he was doing of real vampires. And he wants to be clear that these aren't people who possess supernatural abilities that we associate with the likes of, say, Count Dracula but rather individuals who claim to have a medical condition that requires them to drink blood, human or animal. And they do this in order to sustain themselves. Now, whether this is traditional vampirism or not, these people do identify as vampires. And they do that more so to defy the negative images that, you know, vampires kind of invoke among the common population. Like I said, these aren't evil blood-sucking monsters. These are people who medically require blood to live. Now, while this interaction with the woman took place, she smiled at one point. And when she smiled, she revealed teeth that had been filed down to a very fine point, very much like fangs. Now, Browning told the Washington Post of this first encounter, he says he calls it his first time. Though the woman never did give him a call as promised, Browning soon found himself in the company of vampires again at a nightclub. Then several weeks following that, he met an elder vampire who invited him to 
attend meetings of the New Orleans Vampire Association. Now Browning had spent his entire academic life studying the depictions of vampires in films and literature, originally thought that there must be something deranged about real people who identify with the characteristics that seem more suited to horror movies than a historical district in Louisiana. Vampire lore is a very pervasive style of lore. From the ancient tale of Count Dracula to the modern romances of garbage like Twilight, and this lore does kind of paint vampires in a villainous picture. Browning went on to say that until 2009, the only area of vampire studies that I had approached was real vampires. It's important to note that Browning is, or was at the time of this, a postdoctoral fellow at the Georgia Institute of Technology. He goes on to say, I think I subconsciously saved it for last because I just thought what a lot of people think that they must be crazy and have read too much fictional work about vampires. However, his skepticism soon waned after he embarked on a class project that would turn into a five-year field study among the real vampires of the French Quarter. Of course, this isn't a scientific study without some sort of survey or tally of people who believe they are vampires. And the Atlanta Vampire Alliance did just that. And they found that there are at least 5,000 people in the United States who identify as real vampires. Now, during the study, Browning said that there are about 50 living in New Orleans alone, a figure that he guessed is common in most major cities and corroborated by sociologist DJ Williams to the BBC. It's important to note that these communities have largely kept to themselves, knowing enough about public perception to not want to attract prying eyes. Browning, aware of the visceral disgust that his research is likely to provoke, seldom brings it up in everyday conversation. But his own initial belief that there was something wrong with these people had faded after he started to get to know them. And this quote coming up here is a very important one, I think. It's very simple, but it gets the point across very, very sternly. He said, after a short period of time, I realized that they weren't crazy. At least, they weren't any crazier than your average Joe which is important for a number of reasons because he's pretty much insinuating that if these people are mentally insane or mentally disturbed in any kind of way then so is Joe the plumber it's a bold statement and it probably doesn't apply to every single person who believes that they're a vampire out there of course there's always going to be the offshoot there's going to be the black sheep if you will who believes that they are a killing machine that has to go and feed on the lives of the innocent. Sorry, I just had to throw in a little bit of a Mark Hamill-esque voice acting in there. Nevertheless, the fact that this doctoral student believes that these people, in general, do not have anything wrong mentally. Again, it's an important distinction to make. But I did mention the Atlanta Vampire Alliance, and that sent me down the rabbit hole even deeper. What is the Atlanta Vampire Alliance, and are there other things like it? So I googled it. Very simple, very straightforward, just put in the Atlanta Vampire Alliance, and lo and behold, they have a website. A website which I visited. Now there are a lot of disclaimers on this website saying you can't redistribute, translate, or adopt it for any other purposes, through any other medium. And if you want to, you have to get consent. Well, I 
didn't do that. So I'm not going to read pretty much anything on this website in full other than the fact that they have a study that was mentioned previous. They have press and media. They have a whole lot of events, community links, memberships, contacts, bios, all sorts of different things. And they even outline the general vampirism FAQ, which I really want to share with you. But what they do here is essentially outline what it means to be a vampire in a modern sense. There's different kinds from psychic vampires to sanguinarian vampires to hybrid or sisang vampires. They outline what every single one here means. And in a human sense, it's hard to wrap your head around somebody who needs to feed on blood to survive. It seems to go against our general instinct as humans. But everybody's different. And these people definitely feel the need to do that. There's a story I'm going to tell you a little bit later on about a woman in hospital. But we'll save that for just a little bit. I want to tell you more about these psychic, sanguinarian, and hybrid vampires. Ones that still exist in today's society. The names themselves probably give away exactly what they are. Sanguinarian vampires feed on blood. Either human or animal. And these vampires can vary in their experience and not all of them crave the same amounts of blood some have different experiences with blood and the symptoms associated with neglecting drinking said blood it's important to note that these sanguinary vampires feed off of donors people who consent to giving them their blood in order to sustain themselves in essence these are the physical vampires these are the ones that need the blood the tangible crimson resource in order to survive. Next up we have the psychic vampires and these are understood to feed psychically on life force or energy. Again these are performed on willing individuals and they use a sort of connection or link to secure the energy that they need. And lastly we have the hybrid or the Saisang vampires and these are people who need both or at least one of each they may not need both at the same time but sometimes they'll crave blood sometimes they'll crave energy and they will use each method to secure what they need again on willing participants it's all truly fascinating especially when you take into account that there are at least 5,000 people who associate as vampires of one way or another this is going on all over not only just the United States, but you have to imagine all over the world. Further down my search into this little rabbit hole, as I keep saying, I came across the, the New Orleans Vampire Association. And this was founded in 2005, and it goes by the acronym NOVA. And it was established to provide support and structure for the vampire and other kin subcultures, and to provide educational and charitable outreach to those in need. This is also a very fascinating website because they break down not just about their history, but their houses. Now, houses, you may think, that sounds very science fiction or fantasy or plain out fiction. But you'd be surprised. You gotta remember, sometimes life imitates art and art sometimes imitates life. Here, I'm not too sure where the boundaries cross. But it's very fascinating nonetheless. So let's get into a little bit more about the New Orleans Vampire Association. 
Now, this is taken directly from the New Orleans Vampire Association.org website. It goes as such. Beginning after Hurricane Katrina in 2005, a group of self-identified vampires known to each other through social interaction and having various affiliations with different communities, both national and international, agreed that the stability of the vampire community in the New Orleans area might benefit from a local association or organization of some type. While maintaining their alliances and keeping channels open to other groups, they began meeting to discuss their developing shared vision and the details of organizing the association. Nova members were, from the beginning, already involved in the educational and charitable outreach activities. Some of these are supported by the former Nova, such as the feeding of the homeless and all who would partake at Christmas, Thanksgiving, and Easter in the famous French Quarter center and original establishments of the city of New Orleans. Nova itself was formed as a non-profit corporation with an effective date of February 14, 2011. The Nova Council is its governing body, is currently in the process of developing its bylaws and operating procedures, and will be filing with the IRS for recognition as a corporation in the very near future. Short-term goals include fundraising to continue and expand feeding operations as well as creating a fund for realization of long-term goals, primarily of which is property of its own to provide food and shelter to those in the community in need. So while this is a vampire association, it is very much a charitable association, something not many people associate with vampires being overly charitable or friendly. But what about their guiding philosophy? Well, let's check that out as well while we're here. The philosophy of Nova goes as such. Again, this is taken directly from their website. In the lexicon of one of the founding houses of Nova, House Rokochi, Nova is a clan meaning a confederation of houses of the community with an agreed accord of ideals. The ideals of such a clan as Nova are usually embodied in a credo that encapsulates the joint ideals and goals of the members of the group, the reality proposed by the group, if you will. A nova is a star that has exploded, producing a black hole, a rift in known space that represents the vistas of what could be. The letters in nova, as has been said, is New Orleans Vampire Association, but that is not all. Nova can also be read as a standing for Novus Ordo Vampire Asundre, or the new order of vampire has risen. Nova arose from the various attempts to give the vampire and all other kin subcultures support and structure in the ashes of Hurricane Katrina. The quote-unquote new order of Nova is that of a round table, in which there is no single head, but rather a body of equals, each house having one vote, thus negating the power plays that have marred not only the community from which Nova comes, but also many other unorthodox communities as well. In the image of the Nova and the revealed credo, we can see a coming forth out of seeming darkness, the light of individuals made stronger by the backing of others with whom they are in accord without any loss of individualism. Setting aside the factionalism of the past Nova seeks to back their own only to the points where they agree. The points on which the members of Nova disagree do not take away from where they do agree. Each house has its own paradigm, and the points where the houses agree compose the paradigm of Nova. 
it is not for one house to define what vampirism is for the rest of Nova, but rather offer backing where and for what we can agree on. By removing the factionalism such as debates over who is quote unquote real and who is not allows Nova to actually do things that have a constructive impact on the community, making life better for all, even those that one may not agree with. So take from that what you will. It is essentially a group of houses who get along on certain things but don't always agree on everything. But the fact that they can agree on certain things is what brings them together. Now what are these houses? Boy oh boy this rabbit hole goes super deep, it's no longer a rabbit hole, it's a crater. Well let's keep digging. The member houses of Nova are House of Mystic Echoes, Esoteric Gateway Order or EGO, maybe Ego, House White Tiger, House Rokoji, House of the Muses, and House Ethereum. Now these are all individual houses within the New Orleans Vampire Association and they all have their own specific little goals and ideals as well, so I'm going to go briefly over what those are. The House of Mystic Echoes, which is headed by Balthazar, Ash Antison, HOME, which is the acronym, so House of Mystic Echoes, promotes the motto, live life to its fullest, teach those around us, work towards harmony in all your endeavors. This house is inclusive of the sum total of diversity while fostering an overall sense of community. Belfazar has made himself something of a spokesperson for both Nova and vampirism in general, with emphasis on being a sanguine feeding. The Esoteric Gateway Order, or Ego, was founded by Jezebel de Luna in the 1990s in the New Orleans area. Ego is an invitation-only house, whose potential members are selected and evaluated for a year's time before an invitation may be extended. New members are, upon acceptance, given full house status and responsibilities which include helping with the Vampire Ball and charity wine tasting, helping the founder with the Nova Charities, etc. Ego is about helping women put a strong foot forward in and out of the vampire community. House White Tiger is headed by Jade Gribanov, and this house provides a place from which its independent members can promote self-sufficiency and individuality in cooperation with like-minded others. Members pursue their individual paths with some support of other members available without intrusion. Though mutual support of individual paths, House White Tiger hopes to change the stereotypes, not only of vampire kind, but of the larger metaphysical and magical community in general. House Rokoji is headed by Mephistopheles, this house harkens back to the decadence enjoyed by the privileged few in other times, while taking advantage of all that modern life has to offer. Meph's advice is sought by many in the community, established as well as new to the community. House Rokoji teaches a path made up of three roads, occultism, religious faith, and survival. House of the Muses is headed by Lorelei. This house of many talents is comprised of artists and musicians from all walks of life. It embraces and supports the creativity that springs from the trials of life transformed into beauty and power. Lastly, we have House Ethereum, which is headed by Isildur. House Ethereum is an official chapter house of the House Lost Haven. Founded in 2012, House Ethereum came into being as a formal manifestation of the familiar bonds 
forged and found amongst its members, and as a vehicle through which to realize the goals of promoting the purposes set forth by House Lost Haven, furthering individual growth and development, and providing a support structure for those within the family. So as you can see, there are chapters like the New Orleans Vampire Association or the Atlanta Vampire Alliance all over North America. These are just two. Remember that, there are just two. And the New Orleans Vampire Association has a half dozen houses associated with it as well. So you can only imagine how many other houses and corporations and groups and communities there are in the vampire world. But that's not all. Let's just continue on with that National Post article and see what else Browning found. According to Browning, symptoms of vampirism start to manifest around puberty, when those who later become reliant on ingesting blood find themselves physically drained for no discernible reason. They usually discover accidentally that blood offers a remedy. They might bite their lip, for instance, or that swallowing blood just gives them that little boost of energy, something like sugar or coffee might do to uh, just a normal person, a regular, everyday, average Joe, as Browning would say. He goes on to note that not every vampire must drink blood to survive, and we've gone over this, those are called sanguinarians. Some need the psychic energy, the size, we've gone over those as well. And that can be acquired through intimate touch, sometimes giving a massage or receiving a massage. The community has apparently adopted terms to describe their unorthodox habits. To feed is to drink blood, while those who give their blood are called donors. Being awakened and coming out of the coffin are ways to talk about becoming aware of one's vampiric identities. Elder vampires, then, are those who have been awakened for some time and can in turn advise others on how to cope. About a year into Browning's study, he decided to be a donor himself. It's about as weird as you're thinking it is. He said each of them have a particular method. He said the person that he was a donor for used a disposable scalpel to make a tiny prick on Browning's back, then used his fingers to squeeze the area until blood came out. He put his mouth directly over the wound, lapping up the blood as it came out. He put his mouth directly over the scalpel mark and repeated the process two or three times before cleaning Browning's wound. Now, I think everybody might have cringed a little bit at that little anecdote there. I know I kind of winced once or twice as well, just thinking about putting my mouth on somebody else's wound or vice versa. It just seems very unsanitary. There's a lot of bacteria that lives in the human mouth. They say if you cut your finger, not to lick it or not to suck on it because it can spread infection. Your mouth is a cesspool of terrible things, which is why kissing is actually kind of gross as well. But there's a whole nother topic on that. Putting your fresh tongue on a wound can lead to serious infection, especially when it comes from a stranger. So this is a weird kind of practice, I'm not gonna lie. I'm open-minded, and they want to do what they want to do, and there's no judgment here. But the sanitary effects, especially in today's standard with the coronavirus, just wouldn't really work ever. But that's just my opinion on the topic. Browning went on to state that most of the vampires he spoke with cannot control their urges, which amounts to them needing to feed two or three times a week. If ample blood is on offer, they might refrigerate it and later combine it with other ingredients like tea. A woman who identifies as a blood drinker told the BBC that she isn't a vampire by choice, 
saying, quote, Many of us would rather not go through the cyclical symptoms and just be happy to live life like a normal person. Another vampire in the UK echoed the same sentiment. If the cause could be controlled and identified, I would most certainly take a pharmaceutical pill. Most vampires have kept their condition from their doctors because they are wary of stigma. But those who are known to have disclosed their habits haven't been given a medical explanation. This could all very well be in our heads. A vampire who calls herself CJ admitted to the BBC. Yet those vampires who have tried to stop drinking blood have met scary consequences. When the previous vampire went four months without feeding, she found herself in the emergency room with a low heart rate that would shoot up to 160 when she stood or walked around. This would be followed by massive migraines and sometimes loss of consciousness. Remember that story about the woman in hospital? Well, this one's coming up here. Browning said he knows of a woman who found herself unable to go to work or even walk after a period of not ingesting blood. When her husband came to see her in the hospital, she fed from him from her room and immediately felt better. Though the habits of modern vampires may seem frightening to most, Browning insisted that the ones he met are friendly. Quote, After a while, I felt more comfortable being at a Nova meeting than I would be sitting in a coffee shop, he said. That's just how non-abnormal they came across. Being marginalized, they are more in tune with their self-identity and much more aware of the world around them. As a gay man, Browning said he's able to sympathize with and believe that the vampire's condition is real, even though there seems to be no scientific explanation. He goes on to say, None of the people I interviewed gave me any reason not to believe what they're saying. Being a gay man myself, it's not like people can take my blood and see that I'm gay. But that doesn't mean it's not real. And he brings a very fascinating point to the table here, doesn't he? There are many afflictions that don't have a physical diagnosis. Many mental illnesses don't have physical properties that you can associate with a diagnosis. I mean, sure, if you go into somebody's brain chemistry, you might be able to find out what's not firing correctly and maybe fix it that way. But chances are that wouldn't be super effective. So perhaps vampirism is a real affliction that people who just need blood, need blood. Another important note here is a sociologist at the Idaho State University has conducted research on how vampire stigma has affected the quality of individuals' healthcare. In his studies, Williams, the sociologist in question, has found no evidence of psychiatric issues in self-identified vampires. And lastly, Browning said these are not just superfans or fanatical vampire worshippers in any way from fiction. He said he mentioned an episode of True Blood and said no one knew what he was talking about. This lack of awareness indicated to him that vampires weren't superfans who had simply taken their obsession with fantasy narratives to an extreme. Rather, they were normal people with routines no different from everyone else. Well, I mean, of course they just drink blood. But hey, that's up to them, what they want to do and how they perceive themselves in the world. In today's day and age, where everybody can identify as anything or anybody, why should we negate the vampire belief? These people seem to have physical symptoms, whether it is in their head or not. They do have lethargy. They feel ill. They have no energy. They get put into the hospital when they haven't had fresh blood in periods of time. It's just a fascinating look at a subculture of something that most people write off as pure fiction. But as we discussed earlier, art imitates life and life imitates art. It's hard to say what is what in this scenario. What came first, the chicken or the egg? What came first, Dracula 
or the real-life vampire? I'll leave that up for you to decide. My name is Casey, and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to find me on Twitter at HorrorShotsProd, that's prod as in production. On Facebook at Facebook.com slash HorrorShots, where I will be streaming Dead by Daylight every single day, Monday through Friday, from 1 until whenever, that's Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Or lastly, you can find me on Instagram at OmnisOriginsPod. Once again, thank you for listening, and have yourself a wonderful week. Until next time.